The theme for today is there is no room for prejudice or walls. And the text comes from Acts chapter 11, verses 1 to 17. Soon the news reached the apostles and other believers in Judea that the Gentiles, that's us, had received the word of God. But when Peter arrived back in Jerusalem, the Jewish believers criticised him. You entered the home of Gentiles and even ate with them, they said. Then Peter told them exactly what had happened. I was in the town of Joppa, he said, and while I was praying, I went into a trance and saw a vision. Something like a large sheet was let down by its four corners from the sky. And it came right down to me. When I looked inside the sheet, I saw all kinds of tame and wild animals, reptiles and birds. And I heard a voice say, Get up, Peter, kill and eat them. No, Lord, I replied. I've never eaten anything that our Jewish laws have declared impure or unclean. But the voice from heaven spoke again. Do not call something unclean if God has made it clean. This happened three times before the sheet and all it contained was pulled back to heaven. Just then, three men who had been sent from Caesarea arrived at the house where we were staying. The Holy Spirit told me to go with them and not to worry that they were Gentiles. These six brothers here accompanied me and we soon entered the home of the man who had sent for us. He told us how an angel had appeared to him in his home and had told him, Send messages to Joppa and summon a man named Simon Peter. He will tell you how you and everyone in your household can be saved. As I began to speak, Peter continued, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as he fell on us at the beginning. Then I thought of the Lord's word when he said, John baptised with water, but you will be baptised with the Holy Spirit. We'll now hear a video message from Pastor Finn. There is no room for prejudice or walls. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word, that in it we may know you, uh, that we may be able to test our lives against your will. We pray now send your spirit that we may know all the more your great love for us and all your creation. In Jesus' name. Amen. So this morning we will be preaching, or I will be preaching, you'll be listening uh, to a sermon on Acts chapter 11. So if you have your Bibles with you, please feel free to turn to that. If you've got it on your phone, do that too. We'll work through it as we go. Acts chapter 10 and 11, often referred to as the Gentile Pentecost. This is um, amazingly the first time that the message of Christ went outside of the Jewish faith. Now we know the book of Acts fairly well. If you've been in the church for a long time, you hear all the stories. Um, here's an interesting question 
from Jesus' ascension in Acts chapter 1 to now in Acts chapter 11, how much time do you think has passed? In Acts chapter 1, Jesus gives the church, his disciples, he tells them this message. He says, go to Jerusalem and wait there um, until the Holy Spirit comes and you'll receive power when the Holy Spirit comes and you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, the city, Judea, the region, Samaria. That's where the Samaritans come from, remember, the Jews and the Samaritans, not so sure. And then to the ends of the earth. That's Jesus' last words to his disciples before he ascends into heaven. How long do you think from that moment to the one we heard today in chapter 11? The first Gentile convert. Three days, 40 days, seven years. Let that sink in for a moment. Seven years it took for these disciples and those early converts to the Christian faith to begin to see that God was calling them outside of the Jewish faith. Up until that moment... Christianity was just a subset of the Jewish faith. A way of thinking that belonged to some Jews. And it hadn't gone any further. Imagine if it hadn't gone any further than that. Seven years of the disciples, even though they knew that Jesus, for example, went and hung out with the Samaritan woman. Even though Jesus, when the Roman official comes to him asking Jesus to heal his servant, Jesus says, I tell you what, I haven't even found faith like this in all of Israel. You know, Jesus who praised and lauded and spoke with and talked to and gave time to Judeans, Samaritans and people from the ends of the earth was seven years before the Christians stepped outside of the Jewish faith and spoke the message of the gospel to a Gentile. That's a long time, isn't it? And when it happens, it's... um, not like they woke up one morning and went, oh, wait, Jesus said the ends of the earth, right? We, we forgot that bit. The way it happens is the Spirit even has to test Peter. And so Acts chapter 10 is the story of how Peter had this experience. And 11, where we pick it up, where we read this morning, is when, Jesus, uh, when Peter is on his way back to Jerusalem. Because here's the thing. Peter was hanging out in Judea. He goes up and he sees... Um, what he saw seven years ago. The Holy Spirit descend on people and they praise God and they share the message. And how do you think Peter felt at that moment when he saw that for the Gentiles? Pretty excited? I reckon he'd be chomping at the bit to get home, right? Well, the message beats him home. You've got to remember, there ain't no Twitter. So they had to pass the message. Someone had to run it from Samaria all the way back to Jerusalem, going, you wouldn't believe what's just happened. And what's amazing in our reading from Acts chapter 11, by the time Peter makes it back, not only has Jerusalem and all the apostles and the disciples already heard this story of what's happened, but one group, the circumcised group, have already made up their mind about what it means. So between Peter talking to Cornelius and his household in Samaria and getting back to Jerusalem, probably to share the excitement of the Holy Spirit coming to Gentiles and the church growing even beyond what they were prepared for. The message gets back. People begin to assess and judge his motives and his actions. And by the time Peter gets back, probably chafing at the bit to tell his story, the first thing he hears is, you went 
with Gentiles and you ate with them. Oh my goodness. How quickly the gossip turned to judgment and criticism. To the point where Peter, you know, the apostle, the one who walked with Jesus, the one who was told, you are Peter and on this rock I'll build my church and the gates of hell won't overcome it. This Peter gets that reception. Now if those words sound familiar, did they? You went with Gentiles, you went with sinners and you ate with them. Amazingly, they are the same words that the Pharisees continued to level at Jesus. So Jesus was attacked by the religious elite for spending his time with sinners and tax collectors, but the church grew following Jesus who said this was the way to live. And push comes to shove, out of fear, the early church responded in exactly the same way. How dare you cross that line, Peter? I wonder what they were afraid of, those early Christians. Because to judge Peter so quickly and so harshly, they had to be afraid of something. Were they afraid that they would become unclean if they began to hang out with Gentiles and sinners and people outside the Jewish faith? Were they worried that the message would somehow be diluted? Were they worried that they couldn't hold onto it and control it and keep it safe and protect it? You know, they, they had clear boundaries. They knew where they stood. They knew what their life was about. If you understood who God was through the Jewish faith, then you knew about the Messiah and we could proclaim him and he's Jesus. And so here's the steps and the process and this is what it's in, this is what's out. And for seven years it had worked. Or had it. And I love how Peter responds. And we'll look at his full response, but I love the fact that when they get stuck into him, he doesn't pull rank. Because he could have done that, right? Like Peter, the apostle. Who do you think you are to have a go at me? Don't you know that I walked with Jesus? And you're going to tell me how to do this? No, none of that. They go, you went with Gentiles and you ate with them. And Peter's response effectively is, I know, right? <laughs> I can't believe it either. And he tells his story. Against the backdrop of their fear their concern, their accusation. He just tells the story. And he says, I was praying and he wasn't ready for it. He'd been part of the same church that seven years hadn't crossed that boundary. And he goes, I was praying and God comes to me, lowers this sheet and it's got all the animals and reptiles and everything else that we're not meant to eat. And you know, Peter, he's finally learned his lesson, right? The Lord puts him to the test. Take and eat, Peter. Ah, not me, Lord. <laughs> I know what you're doing. No, no, I'm not going to touch anything unclean. Peter, don't call unclean what I've called holy. And the sheet goes up and it comes down again. And it's the same story. And the sheet goes up and it comes down again. And finally, the message sinks in. One of my favorite quotes from a movie, um, the movie's called The Wrong Man. A guy says, if someone calls you a horse, call him a jerk. If a second person calls you a horse, punch him in the face. If a third person calls you a horse, maybe it's time to buy a saddle. You know, Peter, he's, he's contesting with this vision from God, trying to work it out. And it happens once, and no, 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 I know better than this. It happens a, a second time. Come on, Peter, catch on. Happens a third time, three times. 
Peter, everything happened in threes, didn't it? Denied Jesus three times. Jesus restores him three times. Now this sheet is lowered down three times. This isn't some incidental path that Peter is walking. This is a critical moment and God reinforces it. And once the vision finishes, knock, 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 three men, three Gentiles, three unclean are standing at the door going, um, are you Peter? Because apparently you're meant to come with us. 15 minutes before that, sorry fellas, you got the wrong man. Now, off he goes. Right, he's caught on. There is no room for prejudice. And this whole story, it hinges on that moment when God says to Peter, do not call unclean or common what I have called holy. Right? That's the moment that wakes it up, that sets the story moving. And that's what it stands and it falls on. And so Peter's mindset is shifted. And before that, you can see, and you can still see it in the minds of the circumcision group, they were much happier when they had everything bound in their walls, in their um, understanding. They had it all sorted out. It was clean. It was neat. They knew what they had to do. They knew what was in. They knew what was out. They knew who they could welcome and who they had to leave standing at the door. And walls are great for that. Right? If you, want, if you want to keep things clean and neat and tidy, build walls around what you've got. And you know who's family and stranger. You know what's safe and what isn't. But we see what happens when the walls are built, right? Peter comes back having done something different. And he's not welcomed back. It's stinging accusations. It's a fight. It's division. And it, it bubbles to the surface so incredibly quickly, even in these early Christians that it's scary. The uh, missiologists Alan Hirsch and Michael Frost in their book Shaping Things to Come, they say there's a couple of ways we can view our lives when we live in Christ. And they use farming and analogies because they're, um, one's Australian, I think one's from New Zealand, one's from New Zealand. And he said, you know, there's two ways to keep your animals safe when you're a farmer. The first way is what we normally see and do. We build a fence around it, right? You build a fence around that which is yours and you know what's in and out. You know that the animals are safe. You know that they're cared for. You know they're not going to wander astray. You know, they can't, right? The, the boundary keeps everything in good order and good check. They say, but would that work in the outback when you've got a million acre farm? Could you even imagine trying to build that fence? So what do you do there to keep your animals safe, to keep them together, to keep them in one place, to know where you can find them, to look after them? You drill a bore, you create a water source, you bring the animals to that source, and from that moment on, though they will wander some distance, they will not leave. Right? Because the animals know if they leave water, they will perish. So isn't that an interesting way to view how we are called to live as God's people? Part of us, and it's a human condition because we can see it and at the moment we're really good at it, it's easier to build our walls, to build our boundaries and to say this is in and that's out. I'm going to love what's in, I'm going to hate what's out. Right, we've just had elections. This is red, this is blue. This is good, this is bad. This is in, this is out. 
This is of God, this isn't. And if we do that, what we're actually doing is not dividing lines across issues, we're dividing lines across people. Because the only reason those boundaries exist is to keep people either out or in. We think we need to be in control of it. We think we need to protect it. We think we need to hold on to it. That's how the early church behaved when Peter came back. It was theirs to control and they were afraid of anything that would threaten it. If we shift our mindset, and think of our life with God as one being near a source of living water, does that sound familiar? then we don't need to worry about boundaries because we know where the source of our life is. It's in Jesus. We don't need to worry about things that threaten us because he's the one who keeps us safe. We recognize that we don't have to protect it, we don't have to control it because that's his job and that's his promise. It's interesting, when Jesus talked about giving people living water, it was in Samaria. When the Gentiles became Christians, it was in Samaria. The well was dug outside of the four walls to give people life. But as long as we think that we have to be in control and we have to maintain the situation and we have to protect our faith and we have to fight for it, as long as we place our faith in anything except Jesus, the response will be walls. Because if it's up to us, it's a scary notion. And I think sometimes, as God's people, we often think when Jesus told the parables that he was speaking an analogy, when he talked about, you know, the, where the master leaves his three servants in charge and he gives them each their talents and then what does the master do? He leaves. I think sometimes that's how we think about our life with God. That God came and he blessed us with grace and forgiveness and hope and then he left. And now it's up to us. And I can tell you if it's up to us or our congregation or our denomination or anything else, then the only way we can respond is walls. But we take Jesus at his word, that he is truly with us, that he is present with his people, that he will never leave us nor forsake us, then why do we need to worry about anything else? Because we're not holding on to a philosophy or an idea. We're not holding on to the right way of thinking. As Christians, then, we're merely saying we are being held on to by a loving God who graciously has forgiven us and called us his own and has promised to never let us go. We don't need walls because there isn't anything on this earth that's strong enough to remove that, to undo that, to challenge that. Something's going to threaten our faith. Like Peter, go, well, it's not me, it's Jesus. Go for your life. You want to threaten the church and try and destroy it? Go nuts. I will not be afraid. By the way, while you're here, let me tell you what you're attacking. We cannot abide in prejudice. We cannot abide in fear and doubt and insecurity to the point where we have to put up our walls to try and keep ourselves safe. It takes far more faith 
and far more courage and far more trust in the Lord to let those walls go. And yet, that's precisely what he calls his people to do. Peter thought he was on the right track. Here, Peter, here's something that you think is unclean. Take and eat. No, 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 not me. Uh Uh-uh. Those days are gone, Peter. You cannot call unclean what I've called holy. You cannot put up your walls for the sake of keeping yourself safe. You are following me, and that's risky. And that's dangerous, and it's messy. But it's right. And you ask the question, you know, once the... Once the Christian church opened its doors to working with the Gentiles, did it make a mess? Of course it did. The first thing, they had to learn a new language. Because up until that point, they talked about the Messiah, because if you were a Jew, you knew that one day God was promising to send someone in the line of David. The story was there. All you had to do was point to Jesus and say, he does it. You go to the Roman Empire, they don't understand that story. You've got to create a new language. You've got to create a new way of connecting with culture. You've got to create a new way of understanding. And you've got to do that without watering down what you believe, without changing the substance of the message. Because the message isn't an idea, it's a person, right? That creates a mess. Did it create problems? Have you read the book of Galatians? That was all an argument between Jews and Gentile Christians. You read the book of Romans from that perspective too, it will blow your mind that even in Rome, the same fight was going on. Did it make a mess to lower the walls? Did it make it a problem to allow people who were coming at it and would have had so many questions and so many new ideas and so many things to work in? Of course it does. But is it anything compared to the mess of sin and guilt and shame that Jesus waded into when he came to us? where God brings his grace. For, for the Christians then to say, well, we're in and everyone else is out, is to somehow claim that they are more deserving. Does the gospel even allow that? Or do we have to say that the only reason I can claim to be clean and holy is because the Lord has made me that way, and were it not for him, I would be unclean. And so in our own lives, we as God's people, the challenge is then to not be threatened by anything. To not fear anything. And you ask, well, how do we get there? How can we become this well, this wellspring of life that people can come, that we can invite people not just into an idea or a philosophy or a religion, but come and see Jesus? the one who will tell you everything about yourselves. Come and receive the gifts that he has to give. Wonder, who cares if you're a mile away, like whether you're far off or whether you're near, come to the well, come to the water. You know, Peter's experience, the way he tells the story, it gives us great insight into how we can develop that for ourselves and as a church we can develop that as our culture. The first thing is the way that Peter tells the whole story. He is nothing but a bystander. You know, Peter, why did you do this? He said, because I just got out of the way. Right? Like, I was praying and God tells me this. 
And then guys knock at my door and they tell me that God had told them that. And then I get to Cornelius and he tells me that God had told him this. You know, Peter wasn't the first to act. And nor should he have been. But the Spirit of God was already at work. Getting Peter ready to meet Cornelius. Getting Cornelius ready to meet Peter. And so Peter's part in the story is nothing but getting caught up in the work that God is already doing. And Peter acknowledges that when he tells the story. He doesn't tell it from his perspective. Yeah, I'm the guy who baptized the first Gentile. No. He said, God did all this and I'm just standing back and I'm looking at it going, well, if God's doing it, who am I to try and stop that? I love that line at the end of it. Do we trust that God is still active? Do we trust that it's God's desire far more than ours to draw people to himself? Do we trust Jesus when he says, come to me and I'll give you living water and you will be satisfied? You know, Peter's experience also at the end, what finally convinces him, the line that he throws in, which is the clincher at the end of the story. It's a beautiful line. He watches these Gentiles have received the spirit just as the apostles did. So seven years ago, the disciples are in the locked room, Pentecost, you know, it's 10 days time-ish, I think. Um, and they received the Spirit because they didn't know what that meant. And when they received the Spirit, they go out and everyone's like, how do we get this? And Peter explains and, and the church begins. The same things happen here with the Gentiles, but he doesn't go, oh, and they had the same experience as me, so they must be Christians. He doesn't say that. He says, when they received the Spirit... I remembered the words of Jesus when he said, John will baptize you with water, but you will be baptized by the Holy Spirit. What clinches it for him? The word of Jesus. How does he know he can trust what's going on? He can be sure that God is at work because he knew the words that Jesus had spoken. How terrible it would, have, would it have been if Peter had not been listening to Jesus when Jesus said that about the Holy Spirit? Right? It, it would have made a mess of everything. But he heard the words and he knew the words and at the right time those words spoke to his heart and he was convinced that God was at work. How much more then for us must we know the word? Must we be so sure of what God has said that there is no room for doubt? So entrenched in all his promises, in all his direction, in all his life, that when we are faced with situations where we're going, is this of God or isn't it? We can return to the word and be convinced by the words of Jesus just as Peter was. That's how the story finished. How's the story start? Peter says, I was sitting at home and I was praying. I was talking to God. And if Peter had learned his lesson off Jesus... And they said, Jesus, how are we meant to pray? How did Jesus teach them to pray? Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Knock, knock, knock. Your will be done, Lord. Knock, knock, knock. Your kingdom come, Lord. Knock, knock, knock. This is not what I expected. <laughs> right? But so as Peter lived the life that Jesus called them to, trusting in his words, praying in the Spirit, 
God opened his eyes. And Jesus had said at the beginning of Acts, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in Judea, and they'd done that, and Samaria, and the ends of the earth. And this, Acts 11, seven years after Jesus had first said it to them, the rest comes true. And the church explodes. It goes wild across the Roman Empire all the way to the heart of Rome itself where it would overthrow the government eventually. All because when the Spirit prompted and Peter trusted the words of Jesus, the message finally went to the Gentiles. And you know, The early church, they weren't bad people. They weren't doing despicable things. They were afraid. They were cautious. They were curious. But Peter said, this is the work of God. This is the word of God. I've even taken witnesses. They've all seen it. They'll tell you the same thing. How does the church respond? Praising God. Shouting for the rooftops everything that God has done. Right? Once they see God at work, they tell that story louder and louder than they ever had before. They went from fear and doubt to singing the song. Now, where do we do that? Where do we as God's people say, I'm not afraid because this is God at work in me. This is God at work in us. He is Lord. He is one. And it's him who is drawing all people to himself. Let us refuse to abide in prejudice. Let us refuse to build walls as if this is somehow ours to protect and to safeguard and defend. Let us instead allow Jesus to be Lord and let's trust him in his role as head of his church, drawing people to himself and let us then live our lives drawing people to say, don't listen to me, come and listen to him. Come and hear him and what he has done. It's not up to us to change lives, it's up to the Spirit of God. And I can tell you right now, He is doing His work. He calls us to see it, to experience it, and to praise Him for it. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, sometimes it's easy for us to put our guard up, our walls up, to try and protect your work, our work, our place in your kingdom. Lord, tear those walls down. Help us to trust in you and you alone, the one who made himself so vulnerable for our sake and yet even in vulnerability proves the victor over sin and death and every evil. Lord Jesus, give us such confidence and trust and hope in you that we need fear no other thing and that in that we may live lives filled with joy and praise for your great work of salvation. In your name we pray. Amen.